Welcome to the Paydia Education Podcast. I'm Dr. Bernie. And I'm Dr. Richard. And Richard, we just recorded our first official podcast for Paydia. Um, it was a long one. I hope everybody's excited about this as we are. Um, I'm so happy that we, we've added this uh, podcast to our repertoire. Yes, yes, yes. We've been talking about it for a long time, but we finally, we finally did it. Right, um, right. And we started off with a bang. Uh, the, the, this podcast was a longie. <laughs> this, a longie. <laughs> it, it was a, almost just under two hours long, but we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Wendy Bradshaw. Um, I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Um, I know that we enjoyed talking with her. We have a lot more to talk to her about. Right. And we are definitely going to have her on again um, to talk some more. Right. She's agreed to come back to talk about some specific issues in more detail. Yes. Which is, we're really excited about that. So please stay tuned. Yes. And you're going to find all kinds of things in the show notes. Um, we're going to post uh, links to different things, some of the things that Dr. Bradshaw is working on, including uh, Opt Out Polk um, and the Opt Out Florida Network. We're going to put up those links and some other things. There's great resources there um, so that any of you who are interested in opting out, um, basically that means opting out of standardized testing or some of this, some of the standardized testing that's happening in the po- uh, in the public schools nowadays. Um, there'll be plenty of information there for you. And uh, I, I have this is Dr. Richard. I have decided to opt out. Um, I'm pretty sure my daughter will agree. Um, she's a junior in high school, and um, so if you have any questions about. Um, Opt out, or if you're considering opt out, if I can um, answer any questions or um, discuss it with you, I'll be happy to talk to you about it. So please let us know. Yes, and, and definitely get into the, the the Facebook pages because there it's just incredible how much information is out there. Um, but I hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, other announcements: we have a couple of things happening in our practice coming this week on on Tuesday, November tenth. We are doing a free mental health workshop or a free mental health screener. The workshop is on Friday. Free mental health screener. So if you're interested in coming by the the, the office um, at five four two four Strickland Avenue in Lakeland, uh, you can stop by anytime between eight o'clock in the morning and five o'clock in the afternoon and have a free fifteen or twenty minute session with one of our professionals here and uh, see if there's anything we can do to help out. Anything that's going on that you just want to talk to somebody about, that'd be great. Yeah, and I'm excited about that because that's um, uh, one way that we'd like to provide uh, service to the community. Um, that's a no charge day, right? Right. Yeah. So this is a giving back to the community. So um, we look forward to seeing if you'd like to come in and chat briefly. Uh, please feel free. That'd be great. And um, on Friday, November 13th, we are uh, doing a workshop. Our next workshop is Medication Myths and Misperceptions. We will be doing that in Bartow at the Florida Industrial and Phosphate Research Institute in their library, the same place that we've done the last couple. Right. Um, it's sure to be a great um, uh, a great workshop because we're going to talk about the four broad classes of medications, uh, hopefully be able to answer lots of questions for you, and we're certainly going to provide information about the four broad classes of medications, anti-anxiety medications, mood-related medications, so the antidepressants and the mood stabilizers, um, ADHD-type medications. I, I, I've been calling it the stimulants, but I think we're going to include in there the non-stimulant-based right. medications for ADHD as well, and then, of course, the antipsychotic medications, which are 
increasing in prevalence, increasing in use, um, especially in children. So uh, we definitely need to talk about it. And once again, bring your questions. Uh, we'll be happy. We, we leave time at the end for questions. So if you have questions about medication, either your own or for your children, uh, please come equipped with those. We'll be happy to talk to you and answer any questions we can. Yep. If you're a mental health professional, we'll be offering, uh, you'll be able to register for uh, CEUs. Um, so you can get three CEUs for that. Uh, it it's $30, but um, we'll, we'll give you the certificate that day and we register it with. Um, the, the state so that you get those credits right away. Um, if you're a teacher and you're interested in it, we will be able to provide you some paperwork that you're, hopefully your administrator will accept to use for um, for in-service credit. In service, right. So that'll be great also. And if you're just a parent, um, not just a parent, if you are a parent, uh, you have a lot of work to do too, but we can, uh, again, as Dr. Richard said, we are there to answer whatever questions we can um, about all of this. Um, and if you're just a person who's interested in it, you don't have a child, you're not a teacher, you're not a mental health professional, but you're wondering about what some of these medications are all about, you are more than welcome as well. Come on in and uh, we'll talk about it. Because we're not just going to talk about medications for kids, we're going to be talking about it for adults as well. So something for everybody. All right. Um, so with that, um, I hope, again, we hope you enjoy this first real broadcast for uh, Paydia. Uh, it was a great conversation. We got we we touched on a lot of different things, um, and again, Dr. Bradshaw, we we just kind of gave her the floor sometimes, and she gave us lots of information. So lots of information, and uh, is uh, passionate about it. So uh, please tune in. Yes. So uh, until uh, next time, um, stay tuned, keep listening, and uh, there's always going to be more stuff to come. More to come. All okay. right. Bye bye. Welcome to the official episode two of Paydia, the Paydia Education Podcast. Now, uh, for those of you who've listened to some of our previous podcasts, Dr. Richard and I uh, do another podcast called The Mental Breakdown that we've been doing. Uh, we've done about 31 episodes now. And uh, within the past couple weeks, we decided that we were going to split our work between mental health and education because uh, we, we do a lot of education podcasts through the mental breakdown. And we figured that uh, education needs its own special attention because there's so much to talk about that we could do a weekly podcast uh, on education by itself. So this is our first official recording for Paydia, um, and we're excited about this one because we have a guest with us today. Uh, very excited about it, and we can't wait to get into the conversation. Hopefully, there's plenty of you guys out there on Mixler listening uh, so that you can join in on the conversation and um, be part of the talk. Oh, by the way, good morning, Richard. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, it's, good to, it's good to see you. Good to be here on a Sunday morning. Good to be here. Only one more working day. What, what, how do they say that? One more work day before Monday? That's right. That's right. We just have to get through today, and then we can start the week over again. That's right. <laughs> so today, um, again, today's an exciting day because we're, we have uh, Dr. Wendy Bradshaw with us today. Um, for those of you who are either listening live or listening to the recording, uh, 
Dr. Bradshaw has been uh, all over the place. Yes. <laughs> Ashton Kutcher re, uh, posted my Not article. Really? And you know, everyone was like, wow, you've hit the big times now. And I was yeah, like, you have. well, I really hope he puts money into education because right. of this. <laughs> or that he comes to visit. Yes. <laughs> well, they just had a baby, so maybe he'll hire me. Oh, there you go. <laughs> wow. Uh, Ashton Kutcher. Well, um, so you, you've my been... My daughter a, would like that. That's right. Yeah. My 19, 20-year-old daughter would like that for Ashton. <laughs> and Kutcher to visit. Yeah. <laughs> but but you've, you've been on, on lots of different media. You've been um, asked to talk on a, in a lot of different radio shows and news agencies and everything. So we're very happy that you uh, accepted our invitation and that you're here today so that we can talk about this. And um, one of the things that I was thinking when we were putting this together is, you know, a lot of times when you do some of these other talks, you sort of get a little bit of time and they kind of cut it up and put in different things. But we wanted to sort of open the floor so we have, well, we have three hours that we could fill if we needed to. So um, that's how much time we can go on Mixer, but we can record even longer than that if we wanted to. So, All right. Um, so, yeah, we can just keep going and talk as much as we need to about this and get as much information out there to parents as we can. Yeah, well. Richard knows that I like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with... Um, just talk a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your background, um, your education, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, I actually, I am the daughter of a teacher um, who taught here in Polk County for 38 years. I went to Jesse Keene Elementary, which is one of those bottom 300 schools, and it has been since they instituted school grades. However, I did manage to succeed and get my, you know, my PhD with a foundation at a school that would be considered failing. Um, so I think that's one important point to note, that there were excellent teachers at that school. Absolutely. Um, and there still are. Yeah. Um, who worked very, very hard. Who worked very, very hard. We did a project there two years ago uh, mm-hmm. over the course of a semester, and those teachers work yes. like dogs. Yes. They're, they're uh, absolutely tireless. Oh, right. Right. So I think that's part of part of why I did this is I know that schools that are traditionally um, deemed to be failing have people working in them who mm-hmm. are absolute masters of right. their craft and are doing everything they can for the children in those schools. Um, so after after that, we um, my home was actually right over the line in um, Hillsborough County. So I attended middle school and high school. Um, in Plant City, so yeah, go Raiders, and (laughs) then I attended uh, Polk Community College, it was still Polk Community College, Uh, got my liberal arts degree, and transferred into Florida Southern, Um, so I got my initial teaching degree, I did a triple major at Florida Southern and special ed elementary ed and pre-kindergarten to primary education, Um, and Florida Southern has since closed their special education program, it no longer exists, but it was excellent. Um, all of the programs there were excellent, and they were unique in that they had a, a lab, a preschool. So you really got a lot of hands-on experience uh, with the children. In the basement of... Uh, in the basement of uh, Edge, Edge, Edge Hall. Hall. Right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and I actually started the first uh, group uh, there. You know, they had traditionally had two preschool groups, and I started a third group to, to pull out kids who maybe needed an extra help. Um, so it was really fun. That's where my... Uh, mm-hmm. my um, differentiated instruction experiences really began. Right. Uh, after that, I went into, I, I started teaching at a Garner Elementary, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, one of those traditionally, one of those failing schools. Those right? failing schools. Um, yeah. I, and they hired me because they had a teacher shortage in 2003. Mm-hmm. Or actually, it was in 
Yeah, 2003, they hired me on uh, as a permanent substitute for my internship because they just didn't have enough teachers. I started in, yeah, in pre-K ESE, and I had a wide variety of children in that class. Oh, you would have. Yes, and it was so much fun, and um, I had a little guy who was on the autism spectrum in that class, and I learned my first lesson about Mm -hmm. behavior management uh, in that class. And that I thought that, you know, you put children in time out when, when they misbehaved. So That's what we were taught. Right. So if he gave me trouble, I would put him in time out, you know, go to, go to time out. And one day he was just very frustrated with me and very angry with me. And he looks at me, he goes, Miss B, go to time out. And I thought, <laughs> you know, he was so angry at me. And he thought, I, I realized that what he thought was when I was mad at him, I sent him to the corner. Right. And and that really shifted my thinking. So I um, I finished that. Went back to uh, got a job at Medella Elementary. Um, right there's a there's a, there's a theme, theme. There here, is a theme. Um, which is also an excellent school. Right. And I taught um, children with emotional behavior disorders for my first year. And, you know, it's, it's so I've gained, and there are defining moments in each of those classrooms that pushed me to get my master's degree in behavior disorders. And in that one, it was, I had a, a, a gentleman who was in fifth grade and he was reading on a second grade level and he had a diagnosed learning disability, but he was sitting in my classroom for children with behavior disorders. Mm-hmm. And it was <clears throat> because as I wrote my letter, some kids would rather be the bad kid than the stupid kid. Exactly. He like looked at line. me. Yeah, mm-hmm. he looked at me um, probably three weeks into the school year, and I had pulled out you know the the reading materials on the second grade level that we were supposed mm-hmm. to give these students, and he looked at me and he goes. I am so effing tired of reading Henry and Mush. <laughs> and, you know, and I looked at him, and the language came out of his mouth, but the underlying message was, why in the world would an 11-year-old boy want That's to funny. read this cartoon story written for 7-year-olds? Right. Right. Uh, so we went to the library, and we picked up books about motorcycles. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he gained over a year's worth of reading growth, but right. but we've completely gone away from intraspace reading. We've, you know, we've decided to double down on this core curriculum and that's just right. push it into their head. And mm-hmm. you know, that's anyways. So from there, I could tangent off in any of these places. <laughs> um, I moved back into preschool ESE the year after that. The principal asked me to go there because uh, they needed a, a someone who had a degree in early childhood. Um, to, you know, to bridge that gap between special education and early childhood mm-hmm. or that connection. And uh, I started my master's degree that year um, in special education with concentration on behavior disorders. At? At USF. USF. Yeah, at USF. Mm-hmm. And the next year, the county split, sent my unit to Wagner Elementary, which was mm-hmm. a new school. Mm-hmm. So I just traveled with all of my things to Wagner Elementary um, because to Julie's school to Julie's school um, right. and it was it wasn't Julie's school at the time it was Debbie Edmondson's school at the oh, time oh did she open that school yes yeah, she oh, she was okay. first principal and Ann Wilman was first vice principal and they were wonder it was the best wow. school so you had good uh, yes it good was mentor. wonderful yeah um, and my mom was there teaching kindergarten was she really? yeah my mom was teaching kindergarten there she had moved from Jesse Kane to Wagner and then they moved my unit there and I was Happy as a clam. Um, and I taught there. They changed principals. Uh, and Lakeland Christian at that point in time was opening a unit for students on the autism spectrum. Right. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to come open it because I had um, taken oh, a lot of coursework in autism. And mm-hmm. to be honest, they paid me better than the 
Did public they, school system oh, would that's have. Right, that unit. Um, mm-hmm. So I went there and I started them out for a year, mm-hmm. um, and then Julie came to Wagner and I came back to Wagner. Right. <laughs> uh, right. And you know, it really was wonderful at Lakeland Christian. It's just my heart was in helping kids who were traditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, disadvantaged um, or, or, or you know I thought that they really needed a skilled teacher mm-hmm. so I came back there and um, taught there again and then USF offered me um, a full tuition ride mm-hmm. if I came and worked as a graduate assistant for them to do, um, to do my PhD yeah. so I went that you know that's that was an incredible incredible deal at that yeah. point um, because that can run you into the Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So we, we worked through hours. Right? Yeah. You yeah. Worked, yeah. Yeah. Um, what what program? What department? Uh, it was the Department of Special Ed at and USF. Mm-hmm. And they've changed it now. They've restructured the college. They've restructured the entire. So, but yeah, there was a Department of Special Ed, and then I did uh, two cognates: one in early childhood mm-hmm. special education, um, right. and the other was in program evaluation. Uh, so, you know, I learned in depth how to evaluate educational yeah. programs. You know, it was offered through the educational, mm-hmm. the Department of Education Research. Research. Right. Um, so I feel that maybe that was, that was part of my, part of the interest of my letter is I didn't just write it as a frustrated, you know, teacher or a frustrated mom. I wrote it as, I, I actually do have a background in evaluating mm-hmm. what's going on. Um, right. And... And so here we are. That's a, you know. So, so then, well, now wait a minute. Now, mm-hmm. So then, you get your doctorate. I did. I, and then, I well, I mentored teachers as part of my doctoral program. Right. Uh, they sent me out to the schools to provide support, and I came back to the schools when I finished my coursework. I came back to Wagner Elementary. Julie called me and said that the prior teacher had had left mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for personal reasons, and um, asked if I would be interested. And I was just writing my dissertation at the time, so oh, I came right. back. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I love it. I just I, I love and at that point I was in the kindergarten to second grade unit, and I loved it. But there are a lot of issues with how children in those primary grades are handled across the board, mm-hmm. and then you add in children who have disabilities to the mix. Um, so if students in general education are struggling, it's that much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the students with disabilities. Right. We, we do a lot of talking about that population because, mm-hmm. you know, we tend to think, and, and I think a lot of parents and, and educators tend to think that that's such a small group of children. Mm-hmm. But, you know, statistically we're talking about around 20% mm-hmm. of the student population. population. So any classroom you have, there's going to be a couple of kids <clears throat> with some of those <clears throat> behavioral issues, some right. of those emotional issues, and we don't really think about it how big of a population that really is. Well, and if you add in, in in early childhood, there's such an uneven trajectory of development. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody develops, but they do it at their own time. So the children who would learn to read perfectly fine at six and a half years of age are all of a sudden labeled as deficient because they can't do it at five. Right. So it even, it makes that population look even larger than it is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the um, we were talking about it the other day because uh, my early training was with um, a psychiatrist uh, named Dr. Archie Silver, he, a hero. I mean, he he was um, a wonderful person. And when we were, he did a lot of work with education. He his co-author. He wrote this book called um, Disorders of Learning um, in Children. And his co-author was a school psychologist from uh, from New York. And he 
had this program called Search and Teach that they had developed back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, somewhere around there. This guy was, he, he was, he was in his late 80s when I started working with him, and he retired <laughs> in his 90s. He was, wow. He was an amazing guy. Um, but it was always, you know, circle, square, triangle, three, four, five. So at, at three, you should be drawing circles. At four, you should be drawing um, squares. And at five, you should be drawing triangles. And then we get into the schools, and we look at these kids who are expected to write sentences. And I'm thinking, they should be writing, drawing triangles. That's what we should be working on with these guys. We shouldn't be trying to get them to write print and write their names and, and everything, and now, of course, writing paragraphs. Um, in kindergarten. In kindergarten. In kindergarten, which is completely insane. And if you look at any of the research on writing, you know, developmentally, they should draw pictures with details first. <laughs> right. And now they're expecting them to write sentences the third week of kindergarten. Right. Let them get hair on their people's heads in their picture first, please. <laughs> right. You know, on a neck. Let yeah. them put, you know, let them make their dog house. And, you know, and, and really, exactly. you have to add detail to the pictures and get your mental map going before you can translate that into oral language and then into written language. That's a lot of steps they're skipping. <laughs> exactly. But the, yet, when they can't do that, they're labeled as deficient. Yes. Even if they're within the developmentally <laughs> appropriate range, tr- range yes. there. It's, it's unbelievable, so... Um, for for our listeners who who um, haven't heard about this drawing business, what we're talking about is we've spent about seventy years judging children's maturity based on the details that they put in a human figure at age five, and right. and now we're asking them to write a paragraph at right. age five, and so we're talking about inappropriate expectations yes. in preschoolers, but I think that would go across. Mm-hmm. K twelve, yes. Okay, inappropriate expectations. Right. Yeah, we still have kids that are five and six years old drawing a circle with arms and legs coming off of the head, but yet we're trying to get them to draw sentences and write right. paragraphs, and it's which means that's where that's how much brain development has occurred. It's going to happen, mm-hmm. but it might not happen until they're six or seven instead right. of four or five. Well, and you know the way I'm explain it to some of my children with special needs. Um, are developmentally delayed, but they are developmentally delayed across all domains of their right. development. So they're developing the same way that typical children do. They're just developing a little slower. So, you know, the way they get so stressed out because we put so much pressure on them. You know, they need to read. They need to do math. They need to. They're going to do all those things. They're right. going to do it two years later than everybody, right. Right. which may seem huge when your child's seven and the other children are five, is it going to matter when your child is 27 and, you know? When they're all 27, nobody will know nobody's who going to first. Go, yeah, exactly. Right? Who yeah. Can, you know, no one goes into college and said, well, I learned to read at four and a half, <laughs> and that's important. It, right. You know, it it's, we, yeah, we've put these huge expectations on the backs right. of small children that don't matter in the grand scheme of things. Exactly. 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 Now, wait a minute. Finish your biography, autobiography. Oh. Um, so you went back to Wagner. Mm-hmm. In preschool? Yes. No, I went back to Wagner and taught in the kindergarten, first, and second grade setting. Okay. And I taught in that unit for two years, and it, that was the past two years. And the every time I went back, I think that I had a unique experience in that I would teach in the public school system, go do something else, come back, teach in the public school system, go do something else come back and every single time I came back the expectations had been ratcheted up Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the only explanation for that is well it's what we're told to do right well that infuriates me as someone who has based my professional practice in research right because it's what we're told to do has nothing to do with the research and when I would come in and say well this isn't developmentally appropriate here's what the research says 
Well, but this is what the district told us to do. Right. And and there's no way to fight back against that. You know, you can't kick the can back up the bureaucratic street. You know, everything comes from the top down. There's no mechanism for affecting change from the bottom up. They, you know, they simply don't listen. Right. That's... You, you raise an issue here that maybe we, we should talk about later. Mm-hmm. It's what we were told to do. Mm-hmm by the administrators, right. who in turn were told to by the that. Department of Education, who in right. turn were told by the legislators? Yes, who don't have a background who in education. don't have a background in education. Well, this crazy new uh, teacher... Teacher... The teacher bonus program, which, you know, uh, Representative Frezen read a book on a plane and introduced this idea, <laughs> and that was it. That was his entire... And he stands firm on his rationale that that was good enough to put this in the law, even though there is so much research saying that standardized test scores have absolutely nothing to do with anything except how well you can take a standardized test. Right. <laughs> so. Well, I think there, there was another uh, post on, on Facebook today about um, the use of behaviorism in, in school and that we're, we're treating our children sort of like we would train our, our animals, our dogs, and, yes. and things like that. And we were right. talking about world. Uh, some things. And, you know, I, I think that we're... Some of this is trying to do the same thing with teachers. Um, okay, so we want teachers to do better jobs, so we're going to offer them rewards um, if they meet these expectations. And a lot of times it's just, we just need to let teachers teach. Yes. Just let them do what they're good at doing, well, and, and I, the kids will turn out okay. Uh, yeah, and I think that's, uh, you know, it, we say that we, that we value children learning to be intrinsically rewarded. <laughs> And then we, and then we turn around and we introduce things like a value-added model, which says if you don't perform at this level, then you get the stick. You know, right. if you if you can do this, you get the carrot. Well, you know, historic it doesn't work in teaching because children are are not widgets. Um, you know, you get all all different types of children with different levels of experiences coming in. And what it's done is it's driven teachers who are motivated by extrinsic rewards into. The schools that have children um, who can attain those expectations. Um, so you're leaving, you know, it's, 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 you can see where teacher shortages are. The teacher shortages occur first in the lower performing schools. Right. So you're taking the children who need the best teachers and you're creating a disincentive for teachers to work there. Right. Absolutely. And then you wonder why, yes, and then you say, well, those schools are still failing. Well, yeah. Yeah, they are because you don't pay teachers more or give them incentives to work with the kids who need the most help. You punish them for working there. Well, and, and let's, uh, I mean, this is on our agenda. This is much yes. later. But, so, sorry. You know, no, no. <laughs> because this is something that we've talked about a lot of times because we're not only doing that with teachers, but we're doing that with the students as well. Yes. You know, we're creating the, the magnet and charter schools that tend to pull those really strong students out. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have these high... Um, succeeding right. uh, schools, they're doing very well, but then with the schools that those students came from right. uh, are struggling because those schools are now left with... with what, well, and I've seen it compared to picking teams. You know, you have a, like a, a two-tier system where the higher tier gets to pick their team for kickball right. and everybody else is left. Right. And if those, if those kids on the higher tier, on, you know, on the high-performing team start not performing so well, 
they can get kicked back out. Right. Um, you know, there, there's a, in special education, we hold one of the very, very largest um, precepts that upon which special education is based is there's a zero reject policy, which mm-hmm. means you cannot kick out students right. because they're not performing where you want them to. Mm-hmm. You can't just say, I give up on them. But that's what we've done is we've created a system where you can come and have all the access, these great teachers and this great technology and these great experiences if you perform at our level. Mm-hmm. But if not, then you get to go back mm-hmm. to, to level one. You know, you, you go back to, to that, that, you know, to the Sandlot team. You, mm-hmm. go, you go back. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a thousand questions for you. Oh, <laughs> I'll wait. Okay. So, well, and the other piece of that, that that really troubles me is that when we do this with, with kids with disabilities, um, especially because we don't give them access as a whole to, to those to those tier mm-hmm. ones, so to the magnets and the charters, um, those schools still get the education or get the money, the public education money, as if the right. children enroll. If they boot those kids back out to public education, that money doesn't come back to the public, to, to the tier one school. So, you know, I'm really wondering why if they're taking public funds and there's a federal law that says that there's a zero reject policy, why isn't there one in those schools that are getting that money? Right, right. So, different, yeah. We could do this for over three hours, guys. <laughs> any one of these yeah, things. Yes, any one of these things. Okay, so, so you would teach and then go do other things, and you would teach and go do other things. Yes. Like teaching or Well, they were all related to education, related. yeah. I would teach or mentor in higher education. I also um, I served as an early interventionist, which means right. I worked with families who had student, mm-hmm. or children with disabilities ages 0 to 3. Right. So I was with them before they entered the formal education system, and I would work in transitioning them you know, from... From early intervention, from uh, early steps is what we call it in Florida, to the pre to pre K. Pre K, and I think that was a great conversation because when you and I were talking before, um, I mentioned I, I think all three of us have roots in that because I when I was yeah. with the University of South Florida mm-hmm. um, in the College of Medicine, I, w- I had a, a a joint appointment in the Department of Pediatrics and right. worked in early steps. Uh, Richard was um, one of the early. Do you um, remember the RPICC? Regional Perinatal Intensive Care Center program no. back in the 80s and early 90s. No. Yeah, Florida had the best infant development follow-up program in the nation. Oh. We were the envy of the entire country because we would pick up these children at birth and follow yes. them until they went to kindergarten. And we would do periodic evaluations and provide services for them. There were about eight or nine centers throughout the state. Yes, and when you provide mm-hmm. supports like that, look what can happen. And, they do, <laughs> and they're followed. We knew who these kids were, and we tracked them. Mm-hmm. Most of them were premature babies, right. and we tracked them till the, till we handed them off to kindergarten. Yeah, well, and there's also a huge, you know, there's a there's a shortage there too. We mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. not enough therapists. There are not enough early interventionists. Right. There's, I mean, there there there's a huge shortage. Mm-hmm. There's not enough service coordinators. Right. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it was tax cuts that yes. finally gutted the RPICC program, oh. and then we became. You mean the lottery didn't fund it all the way? Well, you know how the lottery works. <laughs> <laughs> it's an exchange program. You know, there's but, no net gain. Yeah, but that became early steps. That became early eventually, steps. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and they got the as it got funding through right. Part C of the Individuals right. with Disability Education Act. Right. So, um, so we're, we're, we all kind of have that similar Child background, and I think that that's what really uh, attracted Richard and I to, to your story um, and everything because of that developmentally appropriate approach yes. to what we're supposed to be doing with kids. Um, 
because we had that similar history and, and think that that's just as important, I think, is. And the other similarity is you invoke your own child. Yes. As, and all of us are parents of school-aged yes. children. And that's what has gotten to me because I have made the decision that my daughter will take no more standardized tests. Um, and I made that decision as soon as my daughter was You made it earlier. Yes. You made it earlier than I did. But you have to, I mean, I don't believe in them, so I'm not going to let my daughter take them anymore. Right. So I don't know where we're going to end up right. at the end of the year. Well, and I think that maybe, maybe um, the reason that this affects us so much is because we're parents and because we have that professional perspective. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of people have one or, or the other. Right. Um, but mm-hmm. when you do both, you know, I yeah, this know is that perfect. this isn't what's best. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So... And I wish that that I could, you know, make the change happen so that nobody's children had to go through it. But I can make sure mine doesn't. Right. Is are you confident that there is a way to make this change happen? Yes, there is a way. Am I confident that it will happen? No. Um, the foundation for. Florida Future Foundation for Excellence in Florida Education. Uh, that's Jeb Bush's um, baby. It's still very much in control of education. Is it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, uh, Patricia Levesque uh, spoke at the Board of Education meeting, and it's funny because everyone else who spoke, you know, you were allotted three minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone else got cut off at three minutes, mm-hmm. and they said, you know, you're done. They were going to let Patricia Levesque keep speaking indefinitely until the parents started to clamor that she was much past her time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's very apparent um, that that they are involved from uh, um, from very top levels in directing Florida's education system, um, and I don't feel like true change can happen until we're looking at real experts in education. You know, we're involving universities who who are doing the research. You know, what a novel idea! When we're involving the professional organizations like NACI, who have you know spent you know they they are developmentally appropriate practice. Um, and we're not making any connections to them in education. If we want to do what's best for children, and, you know, the law is ESEA and, you know, IDEA, both of those laws are written to say that we will use evidence-based practice, but nowhere can we find the evidence that they're using. And when we, you know, when we offer up as, you know, as professionals, here's the evidence, well, no, we're not going to use that. Right. Um, which, so, yes, it is completely possible to make the change. New York has the consortium schools. Mm-hmm. Consortium schools, yeah. Um, and there are, I think, 20, either 22 or 26 of those. And they use a performance-based assessment model. And they have higher graduation rates, higher college enrollment rates than the rest of, the, you know, than, right. than anywhere mm-hmm. else. <clears throat> Why aren't we looking at their success and saying, well, there's your evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's there's a complete dismissal of things that work that aren't going to make other people money. When you have a system that's driven by um, non-professionals, do you think it's... Do you think... I'm not a conspiratorial historian. No, and I hate to, you know, coming across as a conspiracist. Right. But? <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, there is a lot of money in tests. It costs, I think the last figure I read was it's $44 every time a student takes this FSA. Well, if 70% of the kids fail it and it costs $44 every time they take it, there's a whole lot of money being paid out there. 
uh, you know, and then when children, fa- when they fail, you know, according to these cut scores that mm-hmm. who knows they who determines changing. them, yeah, um, then then there's remediation. You, they have to go into intensive reading, and they have to have a, a core curriculum that the state of Florida has to buy, or the districts have to buy, and then they have to, you know, and the more kids you have receiving remediation, the more money gets paid out um, when you have students, you know, who fail the FSA and, uh, or, you know, traditionally the FCAT, then tutoring kicks in and all of these independent organizations can sign up to provide that tutoring and they get paid for it. Um, there's a lot of money in kids failing um, and not so much money in kids succeeding. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and I think you, it was great that you touched on the fact that, you know, we forget that there's money in the testing, but then there's all the materials, all the, you know, everywhere you go, there's um, uh, posters and, and things on the wall that are being sold and that the school system yes. buys to promote the test to say, you know, to try to make them look friendly, um, you know, to, so that the kids aren't so anxious about it, but yet there's the constant reminder that the tests are coming on the walls and everywhere. Yes. But those are all materials that have to be bought because right. um, it's marketing, it's it's mm-hmm. all that. So all of that goes into yeah. those costs. And, and curriculum, you know, curriculum is a, is a huge deal. Teachers used to be able to, you know, to evaluate where their children were when they came into for the school year and determine what their interests were and then design a curriculum that met their standards um, and, and determine their own interest-based way to teach that. So, you know, if your kids really liked uh, dinosaurs one year in kindergarten, you know, but can, mm-hmm. dinosaurs are a big thing, um, you're not allowed to do, to do that anymore. Now it is, here's this curriculum that the district bought and paid for, so you can only teach out of it. And I'm sorry, dinosaurs aren't part of that curriculum. So, um, right. so it's not interest-based, but, the, you know, people forget that that curriculum didn't appear out of nowhere because some publisher felt goodness in his heart and gave it to the district. There's a lot of money in that curriculum, um, and if the students don't do well with that curriculum, then they go to you know then they get interventions, and you have to pay for intervention materials. Right. Um, so there's a lot of money in this in this curriculum and assessment, um, you know, focus of the of the schools. When you know, I thought uh, the mission seems to be um, is is said to be standards. You know, here are the standards. Right. And we want them to be college and career ready. Mm-hmm. But if we really wanted them to be college and career ready, why aren't we talking to the college professors and determining where the weaknesses are? Um, I'm a college professor, and I shared with you guys um, last night I had to grade a paper that, and actually write a comment that said, please don't use all caps in an academic paper. There were a lot of facts in that paper it would have met the rubric you know for a five paragraph essay any day of the week because all the content was there Mm -hmm. it was not written uh well when you talk about you know the actual english language um it was just a lot of facts that were put together um and and not in any sort of cohesive uh way and that's because i've been reading um because I'm focused on the early years, so I've been reading more about what how this is playing out in high in in the upper grades, mm-hmm. and it is English professors or not professors English, English teachers teacher. are very frustrated because they're not allowed to teach the basics, 
Right. You know, they're not allowed to teach, they, they don't really teach grammar mm-hmm. anymore. Um, right. And if you don't read high quality literature, then you don't know what beautiful writing looks like or persuasive writing really looks like. Um, so the, the papers that I'm getting, a lot of them are, you know, look like they were written to pass a standardized writing test. They were. Right. Yes. Because that's what we're teaching. Um, so let me go back to um, this co- common core uh, and differentiated instruction. Right. Okay. So at some point we decide to move away from differentiated instruction. Mm-hmm. Even though it's still part of the teacher evaluation, the teacher should differentiate So they're supposed to differentiate. Well... On the evaluation, they're supposed to differentiate. If they do it in the classroom, then they're told they're not teaching that's the my, core curriculum. That's my question. If yes. that's the question that I have. That, and you've you as you say, you were in both worlds. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, how do you differentiate when you're supposed to be on the same? On page, page five, on day five. On day five. Uh, you can't, is the answer. And so what? That, that is <clears throat> one of the major driving reasons that, I, you know, that I wrote that letter and that I decided I just couldn't do it anymore um, because I would go into these classrooms where I was, you know, I, I did. I worked with my, with my students and I... Um, and they were at a place where they could be successful in an appropriate general mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. classroom. Mm-hmm. But when I would go with them out to these classrooms and, and work with the teachers, uh, the teachers would say, but I'm not allowed to do that. That's what I keep hearing. Um, yeah. they're not allowed to do it. They're not allowed to do it. So they can't differentiate on interest because they have to be on page five on day five. There's no right. room for the children's interests anymore. Some, right. you know, the, the curriculum has decided what the children should find interesting. Right. So it is not. Whether driven. it's interesting or not, they have to Right. So, so it's not differentiated by interest anymore. And it's not differentiated by level anymore because children don't just come, you know, they have the core curriculum materials and then they have intervention materials. But the, even those intervention materials assume that all these children need they extra help the, the exact same way, um, which, same which is ridiculous. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for, for example, I have a, um, one of my uh, good friends is a second grade teacher. And she was very frustrated because she has children with um, fine motor difficulties. Do there are underlying medical reasons for the fine motor difficulties? Um, she's told me, and she has centers in her room. Well, now they've decided that you can't. Uh, that even the centers have to follow a very specific format, and they have to be rigorous. Well, she has an occupational therapist that comes into her room, and the occupational therapist said, these are not appropriate for these students. You know, we're working on this skill, which is still, you know, fine motor control, um, but due to an underlying medical, you know, uh, problem. And so she goes to the administration, and she says, the occupational therapist, who is a professional, says... I need to change these centers so that they will be more appropriate for these kids. And he said... Well, no, they're not rigorous enough that way. Well, simply making something hard doesn't mean that it's good mm-hmm. educational practice. But if you have administrators who don't have a lot of experience um, in the classroom themselves, uh, because at this point I think that you can be a principal with three years uh, right. teaching experience, and you don't have. It, it used to be that you had to go across grades to get a sense of what it was like in, in all the grades. And if they don't have any sort of a background in ESE, and they've only taken one ESE course ever, 
or, or two, you know, ever right. in their whole career and never used those courses to actually work with children who have disabilities, then they have this this disconnect from actual practice. Right. So the administrator said, you know, is basically saying, well, I don't care what the, you know, the expert in occupational therapy says, you can't change it because it won't be hard enough then, because that's what rigorous means. It means hard. Um, it means challenging, you know, is, is what they would like you to believe. But if you have children at their frustration level all day long, they're not going to learn. <laughs> You've mentioned, right. You yeah. mentioned the zone of proximal development. development in yes. Matter, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that this <clears throat> all ties together <clears throat> with, um, some, again, something we were talking about earlier. And, and that's what we're doing is we're, we're trying to push, push, push. Yes. Um, we're trying to make things harder as though harder makes it better. better. Um, but we're, we're missing, we're not creating a firm foundation. Right. Um, and so what, what's happening is we're, we're pushing kids to do more and more stuff, but we're not building the basic skills that they need for that other stuff to be built on. Right. We're trying to teach them algebra before they know multiplication. Exactly. And it doesn't fit developmentally. Right. Well, no, they're doing timed addition and subtraction tests in kindergarten now. Um, yeah, really. You know, and how's that? We, we're still at, at a place where we should be at, see, and I, it's hard for me to do this without using professional terms. We should still be doing conservation. Right. Um, yeah. You know, here, where it's, you know, this group of five things in a, in, you know, in a bunch and this group of five things in a line, that's still the same number of things. Right. One to one correspondence. One to one correspondence, exactly. You know, um, length, you know, the two of this block makes one of this big block and then when they get to fractions and a few grade levels up we wonder why they absolutely can't grasp it well it's because we didn't give them the foundation and experiences they needed to actually get that right um and there is there's almost like this sense now that if children are having fun then it can't be good for them you know it can't be academic enough it can't be rigorous rigorous enough enough. yeah so but i mean if you want to walk? Do you really want to walk into a classroom and see five-year-olds miserable? Mm-hmm. You know what is so bad about children having fun mm-hmm. while they're learning? Right. Um, and and I think that's that's a piece that I've heard over and over. You know, I keep getting messages from teachers, private messages mostly because they're afraid of retribution. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been, the, they've been warned. Yeah. yeah. The, oh, yeah. The, and I'm sure at this point they've been warned not to talk to me. <laughs> and I, and <laughs> at least I, in Polk I County. Just, I'm going to read that's right. <laughs> you, that is a scarlet letter that you have, you yeah. know, tattooed up there. Um, no, the, the, for the for the listeners who, who uh, may not know this, teachers are essentially under a gag order. Yes. They are not permitted no. to discuss any of this, Mm-mm. even if they know what they're talking about, right. as you did, um, you're not to discuss this. No, mm-hmm. you, you are not to discuss it. And if you say, this isn't best practice and I don't want to do it this way, mm-hmm. you know, you'll receive disciplinary action, right. even if you give you know every valid reason possible right. for why you don't want to do this. You know, because mm-hmm. I've received mm-hmm. a, lot of th- a lot of messages from parents that say, well, why don't you just not do it? Mm-hmm. Well, how does that play out in every other job situation? Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it's insubordination and you, you know, you'll be disciplined or fired for it. And there's no tenure in Florida. You can't speak your mind as right. a teacher. You'll just not get asked back the right. next year. You won't be right. fired. Well, and, and I think that this is a great place to, because we've alluded to it a few times. Um, what really 
sort of propelled this whole thing was your your letter of resignation that you posted on October 23rd, I think it was, on Facebook. Um, I looked at it this morning, uh, and this is just from from your Facebook page. It's had um, 79,000 likes now. Um, Just the other day I looked and it was at 69,000, so it's at 79,000 likes now. And it's been shared over 71,000 times or something like that. Yeah. There's 10,000 comments. Um, My 16-year-old daughter aspires to that many likes on her Facebook page. It's the most likes I've ever gotten. (laughs) (laughs) What's fantastic is that a lot of of the the comments and stuff are teachers and Mm -hmm. and parents Mm -hmm. saying, thank you for saying these things. Um, But they're... You know, you can you can feel the what do I do? The concern of yeah. I don't want to say too much. Yeah. I don't want to throw too much support there because if I do, if somebody else sees Can't my Facebook page, mm-hmm. um, I'll right. get in trouble. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and, and and it's it's sad, um, which is the the most elementary word you can use. Right. Uh, but it's sad that that adult professionals uh, are in a situation where they can't express themselves for fear that. That expression, especially in education, I mean, education right. is supposed to be the medium where we challenge ideas, where we, we push ideas, where we push people to think about things differently. And here we are in a situation where we're forcing them to do the exact opposite. Yes. Well, and, you know, I, I looked this up uh, before I resigned, actually, because I, do, I love teaching. I love teaching despite the fact that as a, you know, as with seven years of experience, in the Polk, in Polk County schools um, and a doctorate, I made $45,000 a year. So I was not doing it because I was cashing in, um, right. you know. Uh, so I looked up um, First Amendment, you know, your First Amendment rights as a teacher. Um, and there's a precedent here, and it's Pickering, Pickering v. somebody. And Pickering was a teacher who complained about um, that money was being spent towards <laughs> athletics at, <clears throat> and neglecting... Um, you know, the, um, supplies that the school actually needed. Right. Um, that they were, I think they were building a new school and the classrooms would only have three walls. I mean, they were really just gutting the <laughs> system to pay for athletics. Right. Um, so Pickering wrote a letter to the paper complaining about this and he got fired um, for, for voicing his concern. Um, and he actually won the case, but the precedent uh, legally here is if. If what you say disrupts the system in which you work, then you can be fired. Well, there's no way to change the system in which you work unless you disrupt it. So it is really a catch-22. You can be fired for saying this is wrong with the system simply because it disrupts the system, right. even if the system needs to be disrupted. Um, so, I mean, teachers, you know, they say, well, you're, you know, you're not speaking up. You're not speaking. You can't. You will be fired, and people have mortgages. Right. Um, you know, you, it's not like you can take your teaching degree and and just mm-hmm. move right into another occupation. You trained for that job. You know, you trained for for that for that career. Um, and it is. It's really hard to walk away from it. And there aren't a lot of educational related enterprises that would hire all of the teachers that would quit if they could. Right. right. Or all the teachers that have quit because of yes. this similar situation, similar feelings that you have. Yeah. And I've got a lot of messages from them. Right. Um, you know, I left for the same reason. I left for the same reason. Um, you know, and if it, and it seems almost that that the legislature and the board of education and superintendents, everyone is saying, "Well, we don't know why we can't retain teachers." 
Well, right. you're not really asking them either, are you? There was, there's not even an exit survey anymore to ask why you're leaving the system. Really? Well, yeah, they're not anymore. There used to be. Right. Um, but no, they don't even have an exit survey anymore to, to ask why you're leaving the profession. Um, so that kind of gives you a sense that they don't care. That was the whole reason I posted the letter to Facebook is because I asked if there was an exit survey. And they said, no, we don't do that anymore. Well, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter why they're leaving because nothing's going to change. I mean, right. you would only get that information if you plan to use it to make exactly, systemic change. Exactly, which they're not doing. They're not going to. It no. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Common Core is here, standardized testing is here, because the rules are being made by legislators right. and passed out. Um, back to Jeb Bush. Yes. Uh, I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, Jeb. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Jeb, exclamation. Yes. Pam Stewart. Yes. Was she trained by Jeb Bush or... Um, no, I don't... Is there a connection? Uh, I'm not sure if there's a connection there. I haven't gone far enough into it. What I do know is that Pam Stewart's uh, biography, because you can only find a very canned, scripted Mm -hmm. scripted biography, um, says that she started teaching, that she was teaching in either 1975 or 1981. So I believe those are the years. She taught five or six years. Mm -hmm. And then she moved into a guidance counselor position, and then she moved into administration. So she taught for five years in the 70s. Right. And okay. now she is the commissioner of education. Because um, she is a zealot when it comes to yes. reform. Uh, educa- the the right. kind of educational reforms right. we're complaining about yeah. or we're concerned about. Um, she is uh, holding the line. Yeah. And well, I think I appreciate her perspective more if she had a background in educational measurement. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when you have... Um, People who do have backgrounds in psychology and educational measurement, uh, pediatricians, we, you have, uh, you know, uh, people with uh, doctoral degrees who have had to go through extensive training um, in measurement. Right. And they're saying you, you should not use tests this way. You should not use tests this way. You should not use these standardized tests this way. The cut scores are arbitrary. Um, right. You know, all of these complaints. The, the superintendents of Florida all got together, which is unheard heard of, to issue a statement that they had no confidence in in these tests. And, yeah, and she's holding the line. And she turned around and said, we're going to use them anyway. They are valid. Yeah, they are valid. She said that. Yes, and if you look at this validity study, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't have a degree in educational measurement. I took a few college statistics, you know, doctor-level statistics courses and and research measurement, and I can tell you that is not a validity study. If I had turned in something like that and said it was a validity study, I would have failed. Um, You know, so what are we doing when we we hold this paper up and say, this is a validity study, and the whole professional establishment goes, no, it's not, not. and she said, well, too bad it is. I said it is. But but we still consider these valid tests. Yeah, and then, you know, they expect us to have confidence that the Board Mm -hmm. of Education is doing things with the best interest of the children at heart. Um, And it's very clear that that is not the case, which is, I think, why um, there's been so much backlash. And, you know, there's the opt-out movement is booming um, in New York, and Mm -hmm. it's also the numbers are growing substantially here in Florida. Um, Yeah, and and in other places, you know, uh, some places have already scrapped their their tests because, or Colorado wrote into law that parents can opt out. Yes. um, Mm -hmm. Because of 
because parents are, are clamoring now and uh, for change, um, which I think is the only way to, to really get anything changed. Right. Mm-hmm. It's going to require civil disobedience yes. because these are mandated. Yes. I mean, Pam Stewart reminded everybody yes. of that in her well, letter to Don Gates. Well, she reminded you that every child has every test. Right. What, what she's failing to mention is that you can't make children answer test questions. Right, That's and you right. can't make them do their best or answer them right. right. You know, you can't get in their heads. So yes, your child can sit for that test. They don't have to answer the questions. Right. They don't have to give that data up. And I think that's another thing that's been glossed over, and it kind of seems like a conspiracy theory, is this idea that children's data is being collected. But it is being collected. You know, they've given surveys. Um, they give surveys to, to middle schoolers and high schoolers in the middle of class now. I know it happened in Seminole County. Um, and they ask things like, how many TVs do you have in your house? Ooh. And they give that during the middle of class. If you have a device, if you have a phone, or you know, then you can log into this site and let's do the survey right now. They're not asking parent permission to give that survey. Um, you know, they don't tell parents when these tests are occurring or what demographic data they're collecting on the children. Um, so, you know, the, I really think that that's problematic that parents aren't being informed that these questions are being asked because I don't want my child answering a question that says, how many TVs do you have in your house? And that just happened just a week or so ago in Seminole County. And the only reason we know is because um, a mother who is very strong in the opt-out movement, her son texted her during class and said, can I answer this? And she said, no, you can't. Wow. Um, so so these things are, are happening. Last year, um, Polk County gave a test to, um, one of the tests was given to the elementary age students, and their student number was their social security number. And it yeah. was printed right on the top of every test. Um, what does that tell you about their sense of test security, you know, or or, the, or really them looking at, at what data needs to be protected if they're just going to put social security numbers on the top yeah. of every test? Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and it's interesting this kind of interest a little bit outside of education, but, you know, they're doing these surveys and asking those kinds of questions when, you know, a year or two ago there was this huge uproar here in Florida that ended up becoming state law where pediatricians can't ask if there are guns in the house. Right. Uh, but yet in schools we can ask how many TVs do you have, and I'm sure that they can ask yeah. them any other question that they want, and yeah. that's just fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does your mom do for a living? You know, what does yeah. your dad do? And, and, you know, on the surface, those sound kind of like harmless questions until you realize they're trying to get at how much money you have. Right. Right. Um, and, and there are very specific reasons that people want to know how much money you have. Right. Uh, so. Yeah. And I think that um, that post or that, that uh, interview that Diane Ravitch did back in February is kind of making mm-hmm. its way through Facebook again. You know, she mentioned that, uh, I think it was in that interview, she mentioned that, you know, really the best correlate to educational uh, test scores um, is income, family income. You know, those who have the higher income perform better, those with lower income perform more poorly. Um, it's very consistent through all the literature. Yeah. The best predictor is income. Exactly. So, yeah, school grades tell you how big the houses are of right. the students who attend that school, basically. Right. Right. Yeah. right. And, and we, we, we have to use quotations. We try to fix that with the idea of magnet schools, uh, but by, by bringing in the stronger students to lower income uh, areas, uh, but look what's happened to that. Yes. Um, most of those neighborhood kids don't even go to school to their neighborhood schools anymore. No, they're they're bussed out, you right. know, and that actually happens. Um, the school I taught at had three 
had students being bused in from three separate communities. They're taking 45-minute bus rides in the morning when literally one of those neighborhoods has a school across the street. Right. And they cannot walk across the street to their neighborhood school. They have to be bused, you know, 30, 45 minutes to a school in a neighborhood where they do not live. Mm -hmm. And the closest bus stop is a mile away. Right. So if parents want to come meet and they don't have a vehicle, they would have to walk down the road a mile. And there's not, it it is not, you know. Right. So, and then we say, well, why didn't the parents show up for the conference? Because they didn't want to walk two miles to talk to you for 30 minutes to tell you that your child has problems. That's why. They didn't want to walk for two miles and then take a a three-hour bus ride. Yeah, exactly. And then get to the school. Yeah, because we forget about that. The transit time is so greatly increased when you have to take a public transportation to get to the school. Yeah, we, we do a lot of evaluations here in our office where folks have to come on the bus and, you know, they'll have a, a 9 o'clock appointment, but if they miss the 7 o'clock bus... They're, they they're, can't get here. They call them, they can't, they, they can't make it yeah. on time. So it's... And they get off on the Bartow Highway. Right. So they have about a half a mile and or more to And they have to walk, walk yeah. Here. So yeah. it's hugely problematic that we haven't thought about these right. these things. Right. Um, or we've thought about them and just don't care. Um, it's one of the two. <laughs> and, and not to mention, especially here in, in, in Lakeland, in our area, um, the bus... There are days that the buses don't run. The okay. city buses don't run on holidays, so there are ho- there are national holidays where the schools are still in, mm-hmm. but the buses don't run. Right. Um, right. So how do you get there when, when the buses aren't running? Right. You know, if you don't have other vehicles, or they'll have parent nights. You know, they'll say, oh. "Well, well, why didn't you come to parent night?" Well, because if I came to parent night and it ends at seven or eight o'clock, it, then my child's not going to get to bed at the time you think they should be in bed, so they'll be ready for school tomorrow. Right. Um. You know, and. It's just things like that. We accuse um, parents in lower-income neighborhoods of not being interested, but we don't really provide that much of a bridge for them to be able to participate. Yeah. I were, I, when I was at the University of South Florida working with the psychiatrist I mentioned earlier, we, we had a program. Uh, I think we just called it the special education program, but we would, um, as, a, as a division within the Department of Psychiatry, we would go to schools and we would um, bring psychiatrists with us and we would see children at the schools and we would consult with the teachers and do classroom observations and everything um, as part of a, a grant that we would get. And um, there was this one school that I worked with over there, it was over in Hillsborough County, um, where if, there was a, if the psychiatrist was there to see a student and the, either the student wasn't there or the parents couldn't make it in, the social worker would leave school, go to the home and pick them up and bring them back to school mm-hmm. um, so that the parents could be involved. But the parents would call and say, hey, I, I can't make it there. Is there any way that I can get a ride? And the social worker would go pick them up. And, it, it, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, that's the way that it's supposed to work. Right. You know, we're to right. be part of the community. Right. Um, and we're supposed to make sure that the parents and the kids have every opportunity to succeed that we can provide them. Right. Well, and I think part of this, too, is if you look at those magnet schools or these schools who have been turned into into magnet schools, they're, a lot of them, most of them, are in low-income neighborhoods. So we're not taking schools in wealthy places because their grades were fine anyway. Right. We're, we're doing this disproportionately to people in low-income neighborhoods, and we're destroying their communities. Right. Um, or, or we're disconnecting their communities from their children's education. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, this, this child who doesn't attend his local school, mm-hmm. lives across the street but doesn't go there, mm-hmm. 
it, why can't he go to that school? Well, you have to apply. There's, so there's a, a lottery. It's a magnet school. Yes, it's a magnet school. Okay. So um, now that we're talking about magnet schools. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, here we go. <laughs> well, well, the three-tier system that we're creating. No, well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, I don't want to speak for Dr. B- Bernie here, but uh-huh. I would like for t- parents and teachers to be as irate as we are about the educational system that our country has developed over the since No Child Left Behind, mm-hmm. or since mid-90s, but because it really started in Florida. It started in Texas under George when George Bush was right. governor, because I lived there right. during those years. And then his brother thought it was a super idea. And it was such a good idea in right. Texas. Well, and let's not forget that Neil Bush, their, their brother, uh, works for owns a testing company <laughs> that provides remediation materials, <laughs> and he's made an awful lot of money you know off the of name these of that company? I do not. I could Google it, um, but so could anyone else. <laughs> Neil, and this yeah. is something to think about when we talk about conspiracies. Um, None of this has happened by accident. Right. I mean, nobody's falling off logs here. This is all happening very... And um, as we used to say in the Watergate days, follow the money. Mm -hmm. Because this is really all about money. money. And and, um, so let's... But let's go back to magnet schools. Yes. Um, At some point, somebody thought it'd be a great idea to develop magnet schools. Mm -hmm. And so we now have education by lottery. If you're lucky enough to get in. And they don't have selective admissions policies. No, but they can kick you out for any reason. They have selective retention policies. Right, exactly. So they can counsel you out or kick you Mm -hmm. out or throw you out. That was the beginning of the two-tiered school system. Yes. So we have, and it's called the Matthew effect, Mm -hmm. the rich get richer and all that business. Right. So, So that was the first step. Yes. That we would create these academies, mm-hmm. okay? but only some children could attend these could academies. Attend prior to that, prior to the 90s and when we started these magnet schools, prior to that, you went to school typically in the school that was closest to your home. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it was in neighborhood schools. Right. And if that school was underperforming in any way, you made the whole school better for all the students who right. were there. So this two-tiered school system was the start of this problem. Oh, absolutely. And that did not happen accidentally. These were public policy decisions made by decision makers. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Go ahead. Well, no, and then I was going to go from there. You know, I understand why you would want your child to, to, you know, if they were very interested in science and technology, then you'd want them to attend a school that focused very heavily on science and technology. The problem is that now that we're under this common core curriculum, um, those schools aren't, you know, they still would like to have that as a focus, but it's not nearly as big of a focus as as it was touted to be when these were first created. Right. Um, you know, they still have their, their uh, mandated 90-minute uh, reading block um, with the, you know, with the curriculum that, that the county has chosen. Um, so... And then we look at charters. Um, so in magnet schools, they still are completely under the auspices of public schools. Right. Um, you know. That's right. So, and charter schools operate. They're allowed to play a little more fast and loose with the rules. Right. And you know, we have a huge problem with charter schools failing. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. we have private charter school management companies coming in, 
And even though schools are supposed to be nonprofit, it's funny how much money those charter school management, you know, firms manage to make. Um, and then, so school districts responded by saying, we will only accept charters that are proposing a new and interesting, you know, approach. They have to be significantly different than the schools that, that you know, that the students would attend anyway. So... Um, here in Polk County last year, the school board did, um, they denied a school an application mm-hmm. because they said it wasn't significantly different enough. It didn't meet the term, you know, uh, what it didn't meet the the rigor. Um, there you go. Uh, yeah, there's that word again. It wasn't rigorous. Um, of the charter application that Polk County mm-hmm. had set forth. Well, the charter school petitioned the state and the state said, no, it's a, you know, they were in the middle of this battle where the state was going to say, no, go ahead and open anyway. We can override the district. Mm-hmm. So here are the districts trying to, you know, to make these. And actually, I attended the last school board meeting and uh, I think it was, I don't think it was Hunt Berryman. It was uh, Tim Harris. Tim Harris um, represents the north side of Lakeland, and they have there's a charter that's being approved for a new high school. And he said, "My problem with this is that there are empty seats in our high schools already in North Lakeland, and we're just proposing that we're going to take money and divert it to this charter school when we already have empty seats." Right. And he was overridden, and the charter was approved. So, you know, if we're the schools aren't, you know, it's. The way the money is being distributed um, tends to be very inequitable, um, right. and the performance of charter schools has not washed out to be any greater right. than okay. those of the public schools. And in some cases, there's a big black hole right. of data, so we can't even make those uh, those comparisons. Right. Mm-hmm. right. You know, we, we talked before about the, this three-tiered system that we have, and mm-hmm. all, each of the three tiers seems to play by slightly different rules, rules like, yeah. like you're talking about. You know, what, what blows my mind, and Richard, we were talking about this the other day, um, you, you have private schools. You, you have terrific private schools, and then you have private schools that um, are, in essence, places where you can go and do online school, but it's mm-hmm. considered a private school, and, you know, they can get some support and things like that there. But those private schools, students who graduate there get the same diploma, they get a state diploma, mm-hmm. um, they don't take any of these tests. They don't take any standardized test except for maybe the, the Stanford Achievement Test or something yeah. like that. They'll take the SAT and the ACT and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. But they don't take the FSA. They don't take end-of-year exams and, right. of course, exams or anything like that. Well, they, they get to choose the measure that they think is best for their population. Exactly. Um, but yet they get the same diploma. And, and, you know, I imagine these kids who... You know, you know, you're frustrated in the in the public school system. If you have the money, you can go to these private schools and mm-hmm. you can avoid all those tests, all those requirements. Um, so you have that tier, and then you have the tier that we're just talking about, the charter schools mm-hmm. um, and things like that that play by a slightly different set of rules. Um, and I, I, I even throw magnet schools in there because magnet schools and charter schools they have the opportunity to choose their students. What they say they don't really have an opportunity to choose their students. They'll let a student in, but if you don't meet the expectations, they'll ask you to leave. Right. Um, and so, in essence, they get to choose their, their students as long as the students they want apply. Right. And then you have the regular schools. Mm-hmm. Um, in each of those three layers, you can see the different rules that they play by. You can see the different differences in the education that the students receive. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and again, we, we tend to fault teachers for those differences. We tend to, you know, come down on the parents mm -hmm. uh, because the parents aren't involved enough, as you were saying earlier. And we're completely ignoring the idea that we have three different sets of rules that we're going by. Right. Well, and I think that's where there's, you know, we t there's such a big conversation going about accountability. You know, teachers need to be accountable. Schools need to be accountable. Parents need to be accountable. Students need to be accountable. Where's the accountability for the people who are making these rules? Right. Um, you know, where the accountability, where's the accountability for the test makers, you know, because we can't, and I think one of my biggest, biggest problems is that as a parent, if I let my child participate in the standardized tests that they want, I don't have one, a real validity study. I have what they call a validity study. I can't see any of the test items, right. which I understand if you've gone through a rigorous norming, um, process, right. which they didn't. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, how it would be difficult to recreate questions year after year. But this is supposed to be a curriculum-based assessment. Mm -hmm. Which means you should be able to draw from potentially a very large pool of curriculum questions right. to determine whether or not the students know the material. You're telling me that I can't see any of them. And then when questions do get out, there are egregious errors right. in these questions. And you're telling me the teachers aren't supposed to look over the kids' shoulders and see what the questions look like. And parents can't see the questions because of test security. So who actually gets to determine if, if these test questions are even measuring what they're supposed to be measuring? Right. Yeah. If I can't see what you are putting in front of my child, she's we've, not doing it. We've <laughs> never been able to do that. I was in Texas when the TOS, when their state test came out. I was in Florida in 2001 when the FCAT was right. young. And we have never been allowed to look at questions. We've never been allowed to do any independent analyses. Yeah, and you know, and I, I'm not saying that it should just be open for everyone to look at, but mm -hmm. I say that there should be a panel of experts mm -hmm. to determine right. in each state. Bound to if, secrecy, do yes, whatever they have to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. if, you know, and that really bothers me. As a parent, I'm responsible for, for my daughter. And if I can't see that what is happening is a fair measure, mm -hmm. then I'm not going to let her participate in it. That's, that was exactly what my decision was. Yeah. I don't have any assurance that right. these are valid tests. Right. And I am not going to allow, I am not going to subject my daughter right. to a test until I know. That's my parent, that's my responsibility as a right. parent. I wouldn't let her get a medical procedure that wouldn't work. Exactly. Well, and that wasn't based in research that you could show me and that had right. been, you know, and had been through clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Independent know? of right. the manufacturer. Exactly. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how the state has said that these are valid tests. And, mm -hmm. you know, my son, he's in ninth grade this year, but um, he took uh, geometry last year mm -hmm. and he took the geometry EOC. Mm -hmm. and, and he, and the, yeah, the geometry end of course exam. And when he came home after the first day, he was like, oh, it was pretty good. You know, it wasn't too bad. Right. Um, I knew most of the stuff. I feel like I did pretty good. The second day he goes for testing because, of course, it takes two days to do the test. Mm -hmm. um, the second day he goes, he comes home and he goes, I had no, I have no idea what was on the test today. I don't understand anything. And of course, it comes out a little bit later that well, we have to throw that entire day out because it was actually trigonometry that we had right. on the test instead of geometry. Right. Don't and you think they should have caught that before they administered <laughs> to an daughter, entire state worth yeah. of students? Exactly. My daughter said the same thing. She said the first day it was fun. Second day, yeah. she said I, we, nobody had any idea what we were doing. Right. Well, and you know, I've heard exactly the same thing about the algebra two exam that there were other, you know, mm -hmm. if. And I guess it's the way you look at the tests. Some tests are made to determine, you know, where they are within a broad range of skills. 
Right. What we are talking about is a standards-based assessment, which should measure if they learn the standards that are present in that course, which means there should not be trigonometry on an algebra, right. uh, you know, or on a geometry exam. There should right. not be because that is not, those are not the standards not that were measured. There was never any sort of analysis they didn't even look at in their validity study, the Algebra 2 exam. Now, if we are so sure that Algebra 2 is a skill necessary for students who are going into the STEM field, but they didn't consider it at all necessary to even look at the questions on that exam, and it was not field-tested in Utah either. We don't know <laughs> what right. was on that exam. And, you know, there have been parents who testified that their children came home and said, I don't know what that was, but it was not Algebra 2. That was, And these are students who have an A in the class. Mm-hmm. They, You know, they're not poor performers. Right. 85% of African-American children failed, who took the Algebra 2 exam failed it. Right. And they didn't think that that was enough of a red flag that only 15% of African-American children pass this test. They didn't think that was enough of a red flag to deserve a review. You know, they just expect us to accept that that's a valid number. Um, and this is the same test that was deemed to be valid. That was deemed to be And they our, didn't even look at all of the tests that yeah, were included under this umbrella. We bought. You mentioned Utah. We bought those questions from Utah. Right. They didn't use them. They didn't, they didn't use, use them. Those questions. No, and in fact... Because they knew they a, weren't valid. There was a letter from, from someone on the, on the state board, I right. think, who said... Thanks right. for testing our, t- you know, thanks yeah. for field testing for us. Now we don't have to pay for it. So right. great job, Florida. Right. You know. Now we know it. Now we're sure it doesn't work. Yeah. Except exactly. in Florida where we say it works. Yeah. Even though it didn't. Um, so we're hoping that as you're listening to us, that um, you're getting as agitated as we are about all of this. Because, so what do we do about it? Uh, what well, do we do about it? Uh, you start agitating for a change. Um, and, you know, it's funny that whenever the Board of Education sat there and said uh, at, the, at the meeting, they said, well, we're sorry, you know, after they were finished playing with their phones and not looking at the parents I who were speaking. Wait, and like, it wasn't just him. It was, state Board of Education? Yes, the local? State Board of Education. Okay. Um, you know, parents Was he playing Candy Crush? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but Pam Stewart was, was just, she was probably the worst offender. She was staring at her phone under the table the entire time. Um, she, she rarely even looked up. And, you know, I feel that you should be held to a higher standard. If you're going to hold a public hearing, you should actually look at the public who drove for hours to, to talk to you. Um, right. And not just look up when the business interests speak. Um, it just, it's, it's very, it's in very, very poor form at the very least. I just don't think they care. They don't. I, I think <laughs> and they've made that very clear. continue doing what they're doing. Nobody wants to really make any substantial changes. Right. Changes of substance. Yeah. Well, and that's... Um, they don't intend to. No. It, so there's no reason to listen. Right. And that's mm. what, when we're talking about change, people say, well, what do we do? Well, you know, if you talk to the superintendents, they say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Don't write us. Write the legislators. And when you talk to legislators, they say, well, there's nothing that we can do about it. You know, we're just going to add more laws. Well, maybe you should take away some of the poor laws. Yeah. Um, so now there's actually a, they're, they're punting around a bill that would uh, divide up the school boards further. Right. Right. So, um, you know, and it's just, it's, it's actually, they say that it's going to increase local control, but actually it's just going to divide Dilute even it. further. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
because, you know, it's, it's very funny since, mm-hmm. you know, not to be a conspiracist, that as soon as all 67 superintendents got together and said, we don't believe in this measure, right. now all of a sudden there's a bill that says, well, we don't need those school boards like they are, right. do we? Right. So, uh, you know, it's, it's funny if you consider things in their chronological, you know, and as to how they unfold, um, right. the connections that you can make. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's at some point we or someone needs to go in and, and really look at um, where all of these dots connect and, and right. lead to because um, clearly somebody has some control over some of this. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the legislators can't say, well, this is just the way that it is, and the school board can't just say, well, this is just the way that it is. Right. And I think it's just going to take a deluge on the part of parents writing and calling. And, you know, honestly, I advocate for opting out. It's within the it's within the law. You're doing it in a very legal way. But, um, you know, if they don't have data, then they can't do anything with it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can't do something with what you don't have. You know, I was, uh, the hist- I'm a History Channel fan, and so they had they had that wonderful special about World War One and World War Two, the Thirty Years' War, they call it. Mm-hmm. And throughout, they kept talking about the Holocaust. And throughout the whole thing, it was I was just following orders. Yes, I had no control. And as I'm watching this thing, I'm thinking that's our educational system. That is our educational system. I have system. no choice in the matter. I have to do what I'm uh, told. Right, and and that's where it is. And you know, mm-hmm. it's funny because the vast majority of people who who read the letter or who read mm-hmm. the stories about the letter, who watch the news, you know, I I've gone through the comments because it's been very interesting to me to see how people would mm-hmm. react. Um, and the vast majority are very positive, and I, I understand why you did this. You know, I did the same thing. Thank you for doing this. You know, you opened my eyes. Um, you know, my child, it's, you know, I can see what you're saying in my child. But there's a small percentage of people who say that I did the wrong thing, and they fall into one or two camps. You shouldn't have left. You should have stayed and fought. Hmm. There's no way for me to stay and fight. I, you know, I advocated to the best of my ability. Uh, there's, you know, all I can do is is go to my administration and say this isn't right. You know, if I refuse to do what I'm told to do in my job while I'm employed, then I will very shortly find myself unemployed. Right. Um, and if I had been fired, would people have reacted to the letter? Because then it would have just seemed like sour grapes. Right. Um, the other camp says, "Well, you should have quit sooner. You only quit because you had a baby." Really? Yeah. I thought about that. Uh, yeah. So people actually said that. So people actually said that. And my response is, well, the school system has been following along this trajectory for years. Mm-hmm. And I've stuck with them. And I've tried so hard right. to, you know, to work within the system. But, yeah, there comes a, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And the straw that broke the camel's back was thinking about my daughter as I held her Walking into that classroom, not even this year, what's it going to look like five years down the road if it's this bad right now? And realizing that if I kept participating in this system when I didn't have to, then I was enabling it to go on. And, you know, I realized that people, they have to pay their mortgages. You know, I'm very grateful for teachers who try to shield the students from from what's happening and try to do the best they can for students within the system. But since I could get out... I did, um, because I can say so much more now that I'm not constrained. Right. Right. 
within the system. Yeah, we couldn't have this conversation. No, no. Oh, time. my gosh. I would have been hauled in right. to, on Monday when I, when for, I talk, for having this conversation. When I talk to teachers, we're very clear not to put it on any media. Right. It's done in person or right. by phone. Yeah. Um, and they're so vigilant to look around and make yeah. sure that yeah, it's around. safe to be talking yeah. uh, whenever they whenever they talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and when you ask, um, you know, I wrote a letter to, to Rick Scott and I wrote a letter to the superintendent and, you know, neither of them were responded to, and and I didn't expect them to be honestly. They we didn't. have we have both written oh, yeah. and gotten no response. Yeah, but okay. Rick Scott did just issue a letter to teachers two days ago. I guess it was released to every educator in the state because I got forwarded a lot of them with some interesting comments, and it says, "Educators, we're so thankful for your service. You're helping the state. You know, Florida is going to be the global leader in education." Okay, I'm just going to let that statement sink in, and. Um, <laughs> And I want to know what input you have for me. So he's reacting to something, mm-hmm. and that something is general discontent, I'm right. assuming. But those of us who have written him as professionals with our concerns are not getting a response. Getting, right. So what exactly does that tell you about how much he cares for, you know, for the concerns? So he's just trying to pacify so that he can continue the system as, as it stands. Well, what would be expected probably is that within a period of time, there would be some kind of release that says yeah. that he received some overwhelming support from oh, some teachers about where well, the because who is going, going to write him unless you support him? Because if you write him that you are not interested in the system that is employing you, you are afraid of pushback. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's not like he enabled a anonymous Dropbox for teachers to leave their feedback because then you might get a, more of a response. But he doesn't, you know, I, I don't feel that there's any interest in actual you know, in actual feedback, only the feedback that will enable um, this, you know, the state to keep doing what they want to do. Any elected official at any level who calls for tax cuts is an enemy of education, period. And I'll stand by that one every time. They, they are just an enemy of public education because when you have tax cuts like he's proposing for ta- or Marco Rubio is proposing or he is proposing mm-hmm. or Bush is proposing that money is coming from fire police and education. Uh, right. And, you know, three of the systems that we need to we need. for our society to continue. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're an enemy of education. Yeah. Call well, and I feel that the way that that the money is distributed also is not, mm-hmm. you know, we don't get together and, and no. decide. You know, the superintendent of Polk County has a very hard job. I know she does. So this must be very difficult. This is a very large county. She makes two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. That's public record. She has. A, uh, I've heard she has a car service because you know you can't drive your own vehicle to work because you only make a quarter of a million dollars a year. But you know we have reading coaches and math coaches at all these elementary schools who don't interact with students. Their whole job is to tell teachers how they can do better at reading and math within the curriculum that's already pre-set up for them to, to teach. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, 
And they're not specialists in their field, per se. They don't have to have degrees in math to be a math coach or or degrees in reading to be a reading coach. Right. You know, they're just picking. Yes, but it's a step on the ladder to become administration. So if you want to be administration, you have to try to be a coach first. And then you move up. Uh Well, do we really need, and they're actually, they're doing a study now that's been called, um, uh, some, I just read someone in the legislature, it's called for a study, O'Toole, Marlene O'Toole. Um, has called for a study to see if that is really effective. I feel like maybe we should have determined if it was effective before we put them in every school, first of all, because that is an awful lot of money that we could be putting into actual research-based interventions. Um, Or, you know, it's been shown that the ratio, you know, the amount of time that children, lower ratios of children to adults results in better scores because they can have more personalized attention. So... I don't know necessarily that the money is is reflecting what research says is best practice mm-hmm. for students. Um, so even the money that we have isn't flowing, and I know that it must be a very 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 difficult job to um, to determine which pots those oh. money you know the monies go. Since in. there's never enough, right? Since there's never enough, um, but I think that more transparency in that process and more reflection on what the returns are would result uh, in, in better numbers um, or in, in more results, actually. Um, because the standardized, you know, core curriculum isn't really uh, resulting in, in in student gains where our dropout rates aren't, you know... Nothing is going down. No, not, yeah, nothing is... There are no real yeah. indicators that what we're doing is working, but we just soldier on and keep putting money in these in these pots. Um, and it's more than a little ironic that, and I wanted you to talk about this a little bit, everybody talks about evidence-based instruction. Yes. But the policies we're using Are not. have not been supported by research. No. No. A bit of an irony there. Yes. It's, it's a bit infuriating. Right, <laughs> um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and... Let's use tests that aren't valid. Right. That don't do anything no. that probably do right. more harm let's, than let's good. Put, let's give teachers bonuses based on standardized tests when right. that is not or absolutely... Or let's punish them based uh, right. on standardized right. tests. Right, mm-hmm. when that's not supported at all in the research. Right. Um, let's use curriculum materials that mm-hmm. are not developmentally appropriate mm-hmm. um, because they have, you know, and they say there's a research base you know, behind these these curriculum materials, but there, but there's really but there not. Uh, no, and and it's not that they field tested these materials in kindergarten and determined that that that's actually a good way for kindergartners to learn. Right. You know, they're just saying, well, we based it on these research studies. Yes, but if you didn't study, you know, if you didn't look at how all of those things mm-hmm. you put together actually result in student performance, right. then that is not research based. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could quote a lot of studies, and but unless I'm implementing them with fidelity and I'm pilot mm-hmm. testing them to make sure that they work with the particular right. population that I'm using them with, right. mm-hmm. then it's not evidence-based practice. Right, because there's no clear evidence that a typical five-year-old can write a paragraph. Right. I mean, there's no research to support no. that that's... No, and you know, what I find interesting is that the curriculum that Polk County is using right now, in elementary school at least, it's it's called Reading Wonders, and mm-hmm. the, you know, they say it's a research-based curriculum, you can go on the website, and you know, right. it says that they include these quality indicators, which is not research, right. but you know, it includes these quality indicators, 
And when you look at that, they only teach, I think, 30, 31 words, sight words, for, mm-hmm. um, for kindergarten in a year. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they're only supposed to write one sentence at the end of kindergarten. That's all Reading Wonders requires. Polk County has added on that and said kindergartners need to know 126 sight words. They need to be able to write eight sentences. Right. So they've already said, this curriculum doesn't meet our needs. We paid a lot of money for it. You have mm-hmm. to use it, but you also have to supplement it because right. it doesn't meet our needs fully. Mm-hmm. And it teaches letters at a rate of two a week. which Letters? Letters. So you have to learn the letters at a rate of two weeks so that you're right. done with the alphabet by Christmas, which mm-hmm. may work for students who went through voluntary preschool. But right. the thing about VPK is it's voluntary. Right. So kids right. aren't coming in at the same level, and you're trying to, to put all of this information in their head really, really, really fast mm-hmm. um, that they're not developmentally ready for in a lot of cases. Right. Uh, and then the district adds to the expectations that are already developmentally inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're saying, here's the curriculum you have to use. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. good enough. We have to add this stuff on top of it. But you still, you know, there's all these mixed messages coming through. And when teachers say, this isn't, you know, the the kids find these stories boring or they're not appropriate or they're too hard. They say, well, you just need to teach more rigorously. (laughs) More rigor. How exactly do you do that? This is a curriculum that you taught. Yes, this, this is, is a curriculum. This is the one that you taught. Well, because it's, it's an expectation um, that if you have children with disabilities, they have to use the regular curriculum materials because that's what they've determined is access to the general yeah, curriculum right. is using the exact same materials. Right. And they have an intervention series, um, which is, you this, know... The same company? Right, which is the same, same company. Same reading program. Same reading program, and they consider an intervention series, but it... It doesn't meet the needs of students who need interventions. Right. It's only written at a you know at a slightly below level. It does nothing for. But a, that would be a good tier two, and they could say this is tier two intervention. Well, in my professional opinion, it is not good tier two intervention. No, because, I mean the company would say that. Oh yeah, the company the, would say right. It. The uh, people producing materials would say, well, if they can't handle this, right, then put them into this. Then program, this needs which to, would be tier two. Well, and it's on top of the regular. Right. Um, right. But, you know, there's no, there's no sense of how teachers can actually um, do all of that in, in the school day time that's allotted to them um, and keep an eye on all of the other students and keep them learning at right. the same time. Um, but, yeah, they provide these, the intervention materials, but they're not, um, I don't see them as being particularly, as being intense enough, intensive mm-hmm. enough or adaptive enough. Right. Right. To meet the or needs. differentiated or enough. Or differentiated enough, right. right. And I remember the days when, were you in the public schools when we bought Fast Forward? I don't even want to talk about Fast okay. Forward. <laughs> <laughs> now, because that was one of those examples oh, of everybody gets the same, same intervention. Thing. Right. It's not that it's a bad program. And the kids hated it. Do they? Well, a lot of them did. Could yeah. you use that at kindergarten level? Uh, I don't think we did use it at kindergarten level. They, they started in first grade, but that was the thing, is you just stuck a kid on a computer... Mm-hmm. In front and of every this, kid got the same. And every kid got the same thing, but, but right. that's still going on. You know, they have, and if we talked about RTI, um, mm-hmm. Response to Intervention, is this program that came out of I think it's the Vanderbilt, um, the Fuchs, uh, Doug mm-hmm. and Lynn Fuchs, um, were actually you know behind the whole Response to Intervention academics push, right. and they said everyone should receive this core you know high quality mm-hmm. instruction, right. which is which is good in, right. in theory. Mm-hmm. It's, it's good. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a good aim. 
Um, and then if, you, if students are still struggling with that, then we're going to move them up and we're going to give them interventions. And we're going to call that Tier 2. And that should be 15 to 20% of kids should get mm -hmm. these Tier 2 interventions. Um, and then if, if they don't do well enough with that, if they're still struggling, then we'll move them to Tier 3, which is right. even more intensive interventions. Mm -hmm. But you're still getting Tier 1 and Tier 2 when you're in Tier 3. And then, there, you know, um, the way it's been implemented, either from Tier 3 you... Um, are tested for special education services, or some people consider Tier 3 special education services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that has been... Is it or isn't it? Is it or isn't it? Right. Um, but what they found mm -hmm. is um, there there are some studies coming out that say that RTA isn't, or RTI is not effective in large scale right. at, um, at improving student performance or at remediating deficits, however you want to look at it, and getting children on level. Uh, and... I is feel, this when the Fuchs put up their hands yes, and said, this yes. is not what we had in mind? Right, okay. right. And that's this is very new. I just read We this. need to talk about that. Yes, more. we okay. will. Um, so, But I think part of that is that RTI, the way it was written, um, and there was a big RTI initiative at, at the University of South mm -hmm. Florida while I was attending for my doctoral program. So, gotcha. you know, yes. So, there still is. Yeah, there still is. Mm -hmm. But what the, I think, the, and I, some, of, um, some of my colleagues are, are on that project, and what they've become very frustrated with is the fact that they go out into the school system and RTI is not implemented as it was designed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they have, the, you'll have an RTI handbook and it'll say, okay, they are below level in, you know, in reading. So here are three interventions you can use. Well, you know, one's um, letter naming fluency, which is how fast you can say the letters and the sounds. Mm -hmm. um, one is nonsense word fluency, which is how fast you can sound out words that don't make sense, which was part of the Dibbles program, which has since been discredited. But we're still using, you know, we're still using interventions and strategies that aren't really supported by research. And then we say, well, RTI is not working. No, it's not that RTI isn't working. It's a great approach if you do it right. But, you know, when you put things through a large scale, things that were initially done on a small scale into a large scale bureaucracy, mm -hmm. they get diluted. Um, they're not implemented with fidelity. You know, if uh, a lot of times the um, paraprofessionals who are mm -hmm. wonderful, they work for pennies, um, they're, at, you know, they pull groups to implement these interventions. That's but they true. haven't been trained right. to administer interventions. Mm -hmm. They're not given materials, mm -hmm. um, you know, that are that are adequate. They're not trained in data collection. Um, and if they're absent, then the students don't happens. get the intervention. So there, it's not being given at the appropriate intensity duration. Mm -hmm. You know, it's everything you look at as a researcher isn't being done and everyone throws their hands up and says, well, it just didn't work. Well, then we need to get into why it didn't work. And I think that's the disconnect in education is every 10 years or so we throw up our hands and say, well, that didn't work. But we never look into why and fix those core problems. We just move on to the next thing and throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that because... <clears throat> If we have such that that is such our tendency in education, because you know again trained as school psychologists, you know we and, and neuropsychologists we appreciate the importance of, of standardized of, of testing for looking at um, educational but also cognitive and um, cognitive processing and mm -hmm. intelligence and those kinds of things, and this entire process threw that out and says well, okay that's mm -hmm. not important let's let's right. do RTI, and 
you know, some of us are, have, have been yelling that it, there's a place for both. Yes. Um, we can do both, and, and they can complement each other in, in a very effective and important way. And then we have, you know, we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier with the idea of how we behaviorally manage children. Yes. We use um, very Skinnerian type of approach in, in yes. treating children. And so we have a positive behavior support, which also um, has have some of its roots at USF. And is not being implemented with fidelity. Exactly. And, and my, my, my statements to people whenever we talk about PBS is... Um, PBS was designed to work one-on-one with children or and even adults with severe Mm -hmm. behavioral and developmental problems. It wasn't initially designed to be a school-based program. Right, and what they've called it now is RTIB, so RTI behavior. So they've taken positive behavior support and made it into and pushed it into an RTI framework. Um, That is, I don't remember who the gentleman is who does that. There's there's a uh, Lord, I don't remember. I think he's out of Washington, somewhere in Washington. Um, who does our who does who does RTIB? Oh, okay. Um, the RTI for behavior, and yeah, and but but there's the same problems, and then there's the fact that you know you bring this in, but you don't give teachers proper training in right. how to implement it, or you know you don't give time. A, a big component of positive behavior support, as it's written, is that you teach social skills. And there used to be wonderful social skills materials. Um, there was uh, Project Achieve came through right. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I've used Stop and Think, yeah. you know, I, yeah. in, with such success, mm-hmm. you know, because you direct teach those skills. Um, and now what's being said is, okay, well, we'll buy you the book. And you can keep it in your pod and you can share it among four teachers. Mm-hmm. And, but, no, and, but those are the schools that are actually trying Right. You know, there's no training in how to actually teach the social skills lessons and, and how to, you know, and, and what to do right. for practice. Um, there, and, you know, there's no money for uh, there's no money for materials in teaching social skills, which I would argue are if I had a child and coming out of high school and entering the workforce, I would care a lot more that they could work collaboratively mm-hmm. and have those social skills that enable them to get along with difficult people or to meet challenging situations um, with a degree of, what's the word I'm looking for? It's Bandura's word. Um, F- Oh. And it's it. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, where, where you can actually meet challenges and you feel confident in your ability to meet those challenges and you know that there there's a way to work through problems. I would much rather, my, I believe my child would be a lot more successful if they could do that um, than if the, she is argumentative and only cares about competing with others. You know, we have this great emphasis on competition. Um and, but she can do real well on a standardized test because, you know, that's what her paycheck's going to be based on. No, it's not. You know? Right. Um, it's, we've completely divorced this idea that you have to be socially competent. Right. right. Um, and, and we've stopped teaching that. And we expect kids to just pick it up when we're taking away all of their opportunities to interact with others as children and learn how to do that. That's what worries me about all this because all the studies that have been done with um, Head Start... Yeah. All, all those programs, what they provided was not intellectual stimulation. That wasn't the important component. No. It was character education. Yes. You know, and that's what Paul Tuff's book, yeah. How Children Succeed. We used to have keys to character. Keys um, to character. And we don't, you know, right. all of that has that's gone away. That's what was stressed. 
Right. Yeah, and all we all we're looking at is reading and math, but is that you know? And there does there does need to be an emphasis on academics, right. but we've completely overlooked the fact that there are other things that are very important in becoming a successful person. But as you say, if we're teaching kindergarten students 127 words and right. uh, all the, uh, and, and writing a paragraph, but not how to share no their time. plans. That's right. There's, yeah. there's no time to teach those other things. In fact, you, right. you, you're burning all the time teaching inappropriate academic skills. Uh, right, and then we wonder why there are more children who who have behavior problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that was a big that's a big piece of why I was so uh, of why I was so upset and why I wrote that into the resignation letter is. We're asking kids to do things that are completely inappropriate, right. and then we're blaming them for not being able to do them and getting frustrated. Right. Well, if you asked me every day to do something that was too hard for me, you know, mm-hmm. you're not setting, you're not, you know, if you look at it as a ladder, we're not asking them to get to the next rung. We're asking them to jump six mm-hmm. rungs, and then we're saying, I can't believe you can't do that. Right, right. Let's practice jumping six rungs instead of just. You know, saying one at a time. Right. Um, And, you know, and as adults, we wouldn't be able to do that. We we would get frustrated. Um, We'd be be furious if people kept asking us to do something that we weren't ready for. Mm -hmm. um, With no breaks, with no interaction, you know, with no chance to say, I just, I really need a break right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we expect children to do things that we ourselves couldn't do as adults. And then we say, well, they're a behavior problem. Mm -hmm. No, right. no, they're not. <laughs> yeah, when we look at some of the things that's happening in schools with, with, with some of the students with their, quote, challenging behaviors, you know, we talk a lot about appropriate socialization, you know, helping kids understand how you respond in challenging situations. How do you right. respond when somebody's asking you to do something that you don't know how to do? Or right. how do you handle some of these issues? We're... The education system right now is working from the perspective that kids arrive at kindergarten completely socialized. Right. And they're not. And they're not. (laughs) Um, At least not in the way that the school wants them to be. I mean, to expect a a five-year-old or a six-year-old boy to sit in a chair for, you know, two or three hours at a time. Right. Is completely developmentally inappropriate. Right. I mean, and there's a hundred years of research that says that's <laughs> not going to happen. Right. Right. But when he doesn't, we can we we, we say, well, he must it. have ADHD. Right. <laughs> he does not. He's a little boy. Right. <laughs> and, and then those boys, because they've had to jump four or five rungs on the mm-hmm. ladder, they don't have those foundational skills that we were talking about earlier. Then they become teenagers who are threatening teachers. And, right. and, and battling against the um, school resource officers, mm-hmm. and they're getting in fights, and they're behaving inappropriately in right. so many different ways. And we're wondering, oh, it must be the parents' fault, right. or it no. must be this person's fault or that person's yeah. fault. No, we're not <clears throat> building those foundational yeah. skills. Yeah, it's our fault. Um, right. And, you know, and not, not individually, but, yeah, collectively as a system, we've designed right. it so that kids are not getting what they need to succeed. And, and then, you know, we get to the end of high school, and we go, Oh, well, we need to take money away from you guys because you didn't do a good enough job. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. So, but there's also this sense that, you know, you put kids in centers and you say, you put them in academic centers, rigorous academic centers, where they're supposed to be doing a hard that. academic yeah. work. Mm-hmm. And you put them in centers and you say, well, well, we put them in centers so they can work together. 
you can't work on both your social emotional on building those skills and your academic skills at the same time you're expecting them to do too many things at once that was why we had those free activity times right because that gave them the chance to focus right only on developing their social competence right you know and if you give kids 30 minutes a day just to work on social competence, just to work together in the block center on, you know, and mm-hmm. have to negotiate because there's only two triangle blocks and we both want those triangle blocks, you know, how do you negotiate those problems? You can't ask them to solve hard math problems and learn how to get along at the same time. Right. And unless you're providing them with a high interest, with high interest materials, the, you know, you're not, they're, you're not working on social skills because to do that, they have to be social. Right. Um, and, you know, solving math problems next to each other isn't social. <laughs> right. It's called parallel uh, just, play. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it is. It's parallel play. And now right. we're calling, we're saying, well, that's when they interact. No, no that's right. not true interaction. True interaction is when you're, you're going back and forth and you're negotiating and, you know, and, and you're doing that sort of thing. And they've taken all of that away. You know, they've reduced recess to 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, we're taking away every opportunity for our kids to interact in an authentic manner, and then we're wondering why they can't get along. Right. Well, there was that nice article, um, I think it was last week, about Finland. Mm-hmm. Uh, the differences, yeah. you know, the Finland, we're working mm-hmm. on these 150 words that our kindergartners have to yeah. to learn, and in Finland they're playing on the playground. Right. You know, and Finland schools uh, on these international tests right. do better than us yeah. um, because they're letting the kids play. They're letting them yeah. explore on their own. And it's not completely, I mean, they're not doing a Montessori model. Right. They're just looking at the kids from a developmental perspective. Right. You know? Well, and there is, there are ways, you know, NACI, I'll talk again, um, NACI looks at developmentally appropriate practice and it says, you know, there is a way to teach standards and do it in a way that, that children can it's, still have free, you know, right. it can, can have these appropriate play-based or, mm-hmm. or activity, you know, centered um, things. And we've just completely ignored the fact that, you know, I'm not saying throw out all the academics, don't teach them anything right. until they're, you know, in first or second grade. What I'm saying is we've turned it into such a didactic, you know, Mm -hmm. just, you know, hammer down, let's drill you on your letters, let's drill you on your words, you know, but you get, you get to sing the letters, so that makes it better, (laughs) Um, you know, it's, it's, when all of the research, I mean, going back to the 70s, says that when you put an academic um, preschool or kindergarten classroom next to a play-based, which still, you know, has an academic component, when you put those two things together, yes, the students who had the academic-based um, preschool will have better results initially. Initially. By the time they hit third grade, mm-hmm. the play-based group outperforms right. every time. Right. But we're so short-sighted in what we're doing Mm -hmm. that we're just looking at, but they do better at the end of kindergarten. But the end of kindergarten isn't what we're looking at, is it? Aren't we supposed to be looking at a long-term life-based perspective? Wouldn't we do what's best for them in the long term, even if we see fewer, I call it the gingerbread, fewer short-term gains? Mm -hmm. You know, you build a house, the foundation is absolutely the most important part of that house. Because that house is going to fall down if it doesn't have a strong foundation. But we're so concerned about the gingerbread that my kid can say 126 words that we don't realize that if we neglect those foundational skills, all that gingerbread is going to crumble in a few years. Um, So how about we work on making the bottom strong Mm -hmm. and then we worry about how it looks. 
Right. And that's what we used to do. Yes, it is what we used to do. do Mm -hmm. Um, I have many more questions. Yeah. And some of these I'd like to talk about in more detail, but I'm concerned about our time. I'm sorry. Can we do this? (laughs) It's not your fault. You're you're the one I want to listen to. Um, Can we meet again? Yeah. Well, yeah. will you come back? Yo, yeah. Okay. Awesome. My husband hates talking about this stuff with me. So this is awesome. <laughs> no, this is great. Yeah. Um, no, I have a number of topics that I'd like to really devote more time to that yeah. you know have come up in mm-hmm. this discussion, and if that would be okay if I could organize my thinking and what questions there are, I yeah. could send them to you, and then we could meet again and talk in more detail. Absolutely. I think one thing that we should touch on before we wrap up today is I want to make sure that parents. Um, any parent out there that listens to this gets some information about opt out. Mm-hmm. You know, I want mm-hmm. to make sure that they, Good. you know, they can start looking at that. And you know, even if that's a focus that we have on a on a podcast in the future, that we sort of give them some resources to start looking at, mm-hmm. so they can ask questions because mm-hmm. uh, they're going to have questions. They're going to wonder, you know, how can I get more? Or how do I? And then, who do I contact? And right. kind of what stuff. what can I do about this? Right. And I think right now. Teachers are hamstrung. Their, yes. their, their hands are really tied, right. and, and I would hate to encourage them to be disobedient. Right. But parents can be. Parents well, and they don't even have a contract be. right now, so the teachers the don't teachers have a signed don't. contract right. right now. So, yeah, so they really are <laughs> Right, <laughs> and they, they really can't do it. But, yeah. but parents can, no, parents and can. I hope that parents feel free to write in, um, call us or get in touch with us mm-hmm. about how to... Um, how to get involved in the opt-out movement. Right. Because I think that's going to be the, that's the, that's the immediate solution. Yeah. To this well, problem. and I can plug, uh, I run the opt-out Polk Facebook page. So okay. if you search that, um, I'll, I'll let you it's in. It's opt-out Polk. Polk. Yes. Okay. And it's part of a wider effort, which is called the Opt-Out Florida Network. Right. Which is part of a wider effort called um, United Opt-Out. Well, I should be part of it since I'm opting out. You should. I don't you should definitely be part alone. of it. Yeah. Um, there's an opt-out guide on there that, that discusses um, what happens in each of the grade levels um, and how to do it. It includes information on how to opt out of the computer-based testing. But it's also sort of a community for that parents have been coming together and sharing you know, the, um, uh, media pieces that they found, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. research that they found, um, and I, just talking about their experiences and saying, my kid's going through this, how about yours? Mm-hmm. So it's really providing a community for those parents who are frustrated, and, and I like it being that. So it's not only for parents who are going to opt out. It's a place for you to come and talk about okay. what you're frustrated with. And I, wanna, I, wanna, and I want uh, to support that, too. Yes. Not only be a part of it, but to support it and to serve yeah. as a resource if yeah. I can. Well, and I guess yeah. the other big the other big thing that I would encourage people to do is to join the Network for Public Education. Um, it's it, Diane Ravitch is the moving force behind it. She's an educational historian. She's my hero. She is my hero also. Oh, my God. She, I want to, she has been standing up. Let's have up. her come in and the three of us oh, Right? Her. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, Diane Ravitch is the, um, she's behind the, the Network for Public Education, and they have a, a male list um, or they, they will send you emails when there's an action needed. So recently, you know, the presidential debates are up and neither the Republicans nor the Democrats right. talked about education. Not at all. So she has a push. The next debate coming up is the Democratic debate. So right. she said, um, you know, Rachel Maddow Rachel is going to be the moderator. Right. So she created an action item that, that, mm-hmm. that encouraged you to email right. your questions about education. And they had eight that were, that were pre-written or you could write your own. But here's how you, you advocate to get those questions asked in the debate. And I'm sure that they will do it again. I think the next Republican debate is in February. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because there's that whole 
They don't. They can't do it on what was it at NBC anymore? That's uh, CNN. Right. C- I don't. Oh no, it was NBC. It, it was CNBC. NBC. Yeah, yeah CNBC. CNBC. Yeah. So they don't. So they're not going to use CNBC. So I don't know where how the Republican well, debate is going to be held. They have to teach their um, moderators um, how to act <laughs> at these right? debates. Well, that's right. I mean, Megan Kelly. Good right. goodness gracious, that woman is. She's very smart. She is a very smart woman. But you know, she received. People are just downright rude to the mm-hmm. moderators, and right. I would bet maybe those presidential candidates need to go through some social skills they training. They need social skills training. <laughs> All of they them. Stop and think. All of them need to stop and think. <laughs> right. Well, I will put links to the Opt Out Polk um, Facebook page. I'll put that in the show notes as well as the Opt Out Florida Network. Mm-hmm. I'll put that on there and the Network for Public Education. I'll put all those links up on the, yeah. um, on the notes page. Um, and, and so if they go there, they'll be able to join the group or they'll yes. request to join the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, um, I, I'm on that group. And so, yeah, you, there's tons of information. Yeah. Um, there's all kinds of how-to guides. And, you know, I, I really like that so many parents get on there and post things from all over the country, really. Even, yeah. even with the Polk site, you know, there's, uh, I think... That one of Diane Ravitch's um, Diane Ravitch. talks was on there. Yeah, we're um, big on uh, uh, Dr. Peter Gray. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's really advocating for um, more active learning. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, and we love him. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, so it's great. So it's a great resource. Um, so we encourage you to go there. Um, uh, read as much as you can. There, there's stuff out every day. I mean, there's right. there's multiple links posted every day, so um, you'll never run out of things to read or, and, or watch. And you won't be alone. I mean, I think the important thing now is if you if you join the opt-out movement, you're, right. you're, you're part of a very large group. Right, and, and I think gonna... that's a piece of it that, that, hadn't, um, that traditionally hasn't been there, and I think social mm-hmm. media helps a lot, is when right. you're a parent, you know, you have your own child and you know about their experience, but until you realize that it's part of a of a greater experience, I feel that it comforts them, but it also is resulting in a lot of anger because this is being done to everyone's children. That's right. That's right. Um, and parents are, you know, being made to feel like their child is the problem and, and until you can step back and see it from a wider perspective right. Um, then you know, then nothing's going to happen. You know, it's divide and conquer. If, if we're that's united. what they're doing. Yes, yeah. if and we're we all, united, right. um, and we all stand up and say, "No, you can't do this to our children anymore." Um, I think that, that that'll have a much bigger impact than just lone voices in right. the wilderness. Right. Yeah. There's 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 hundreds of um, members of Opt Out Polk already on on Facebook, mm-hmm. um, and plenty of. Plenty of resources and support with the Florida Network as well. So yeah, um, yeah there's, there's the more the the more the of us that there are talking about these things, the louder our voice can be. So yes, uh, and the more people that we can reach. So uh, definitely check those things out. Um, all right. Yes. Anything else we wanted to talk about today before? Well, there's so many things we could to talk keep about. going. <laughs> we didn't even get to our, all of our outlines. We could talk forever. Lots of imp- yeah, lots and lots of That's right. topics. So, well, yeah, we, we haven't started our outline yet. That's yeah, right. So. We're, we're all Sorry, over. Sorry, guys. No, no, <laughs> no. This is exactly the way that we were hoping it would go. So, um, but we appreciate you coming on, um, and you know, definitely, anytime you want to come on, that would be great. Um, yeah. I'll probably write you and ask you to come on again. Oh, absolutely. Uh, before you ask us if you can yeah. come on. Um, but stay in touch with us. Keep fighting the fight. And, uh, of course, anything that we can do to help out, mm-hmm. we're happy to do that. We're going to be recording the podcast on a weekly basis. So um, 
anytime you ever want to stop by, uh, you're Give welcome. Us an update. Um, yeah. Or if you want to send us a message um, about something to, that you'd like for us to address, we're, we're happy to do that. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep getting the keep word getting out. The way out of- all right. Well, I will add you to my automatic podcast downloads. All right. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. You know what? When when we were talking about building the podcast, we noticed that there, there really aren't any podcasts talking about these things. There's there's lots of education podcasts, but it's all you know, learning Spanish and learning German and right. learning this about the computers and that. Um, but there's not many podcasts talking about these kinds of issues. Right, so. taking a kind of meta perspective of, right. of what education is looking like. Right, right. So we're going to try to address particular topics each week, so it'll be great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, listeners, um, thank you for, for checking us out as well, I guess. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Um, and we'll talk to you next week. Looking forward to it. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Paydia Education Podcast. We are so glad that you found us and that you're taking part in this. We want to create a forum for everybody to be able to talk about these issues and talk about our education system. But to increase our numbers, we ask that you jump onto iTunes and write a review or at least rate us so that we can increase our visibility so that other people can find us and join in on the conversation. You can also follow us on Facebook. Uh, Paydia has its own Facebook page. Uh, And you can follow us on Twitter, at uh, Dr. Bernie is our handle, so follow us, and we will be posting lots of information, lots of new research, lots of new articles and columns and all kinds of information for you to stay part of what's happening. So thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you next time.